Eight and a half years later, the U.S. men's national team is back in the World Cup. And I think my biggest question is in the interim, in those eight and a half years, Amit, did the supporters learn any new songs? No. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a very good question. The answer is no. Uh, You know the ones that they do. Uh, The one that they do. The one. They have a few. They'll do the where you go will follow one because we support the U.S. They'll do the one where, uh, you know, I believe that we will win. That's not really a song. And then they do the one where you just like kind of sing along and it's fun. They did it after the Mexico game. What's the the one where you just sing along and it's fun? That's not a song. It's like, you want me to do it? You can edit it. I do. I do. That's what I'm asking for. say that one everyone does that one all right i'm glad right. you've got that to start this podcast please please don't keep that in this is the world cup after dark show i'm austin miller he's a bit malik as you can probably tell he's very excited the u.s men's national team are back at the world cup for the first time in the history of this show we'll get to cover them in an unironic manner and along for the ride today is yahoo sports's henry bushnell henry according firstly we're super happy to have you on. Thanks for being here. Um, according to Zencaster, which is our, our, our podcast host and our recording platform, we have a potential audience of a 132.8 million people if we hit all of the marks and we get on all the platforms. How many of those people do you think you can attract into the show? Can you get us the whole 132 million? I could get a uh, maybe 2%, a few million, a few million. How about that? We'd take that. That'd be a few million more than we've had so far in the history of this show. Uh, Amit, I, I was going to ask you, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you that the U.S. is back in the World Cup? But I feel like that's a pretty stupid question because the answer is at 10. Can you kind of put into words what it means to to you and, and to the other people who, you know, kind of actively support this team, what it's like to be back at the World Cup, and, and especially after everything that kind of happened in the interim? I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. You want to be in the biggest soccer competition in the world, and we're back, and we weren't. And I think not being there made everyone remember not to take it for granted and how important it is. The stage is massive. And I think we all remember. I remember specifically the night the U.S. Uh, lost in Trinidad and Tobago. I was sitting next to you in a, uh, our student radio station meeting, watching on my laptop and just like having the worst night ever. Really bad. But uh, listen, we, you know, I, I'm sure Henry's the same way. We grew up U.S. men's and national team fans. When they were in the World Cup, that was like the stuff you dreamed of. You were like, these are my heroes. This is awesome. You know, you learn your superstars that way. You learn about soccer that way. You know, we all remember the biggest moments, especially in 2010. I think we were, you know, in our teens. The landed Donovan goal versus Algeria is like one of the best soccer moments of our lifetimes. And that's because of the magic of the World Cup. And you hope for something like that. Even 20, uh, 2014, you know, they lose to Belgium, but just that the John Brooks goal versus Ghana, that was awesome because Ghana was the team that had given us trouble in 06 and 10. Like the World Cup is just the pinnacle of it. We're back in it. You got a chance. And as soccer fans, it's really nice when the whole country kind of like is a soccer fan. Awesome. And you see it with the U.S. women's national team, and they're very good. They've often been the best team in the world. But to see that national pride for the men's team as well is cool. And uh, this team is good. So, you know, we'll see what happens. But, of course, we're all super, super excited. 
It's great that everyone's going to be watching us. And it's really good that USA England, I said this before, is on Black Friday. It's going to be one of the most watched soccer games in U.S. history. It's awesome. Henry, for you, what's it like? I know it's a different perspective for you because you're going to be in Qatar. You're going to be covering the World Cup. You're going to be covering a World Cup with the U.S. men's national team in it. What's that been like for you and what do you expect that to be like? Yeah, no, it's been fascinating. I mean, I was just thinking back to 2017 and October 10th, 2017. Definitely still remembers the day. Remember the day. It was actually, it was actually my brother's birthday. Um, it was probably his worst birthday ever. And I, I totally remember, like, and I, other people have made this comparison too, and I know it's totally not the same and a slight exaggeration, but, like, there was a feeling that night that it almost felt like 2016 election uh, night, um, I think, for a lot of people. Just this, like slowly snowballing into disaster um and you had no and as a as a fan or even you know me that that was my first year as a professional journalist like covering it you just had no control over what was happening and just like the scenario that you hadn't really spent that much time considering what the fallout of it would be was suddenly just like smacking you in the face um and then, like, the past five years have been, I mean, really three-plus years of the five-year interim was, like, fairly dark. Um, like, the, the roster was really bad for a while, um, especially in the, like, you know, early 2020, right? you know, late 2019, early 2020. I right? visited Dave Sarachin's Mind Palace on multiple occasions. I can confirm it was bad. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then, but then just, like, to see the... And, like, so if that team, you know, if that team from two-plus years ago was heading to this World Cup, I have no idea what the vibe would be like. Um, But, you know, fortunately and, you know, to some extent, just, like, the timing worked out great to some extent. This has obviously been, like, like this team is a product of, like, a lot of work at youth levels and stuff. Um, So to some extent, it's, you know, by design. But it came came together... just in time, perhaps not, you know, soon enough. And like, we'll, we'll like, I assume we'll get into that. And, the, you know, this team could be too young and just not developed enough. Um, but at least there's excitement. And at least, at, at least there is excitement about these players, even if they don't make a run at this World Cup, you know, going forward. We'll get into this World Cup. We'll get into all of that. We're going to talk about the squad announcement, which is coming up. But Henry, you actually, you, you proposed a, a a good idea in my head here. I want both of you to name your favorite absolute cone that got a U.S. men's national team cap in between 2017 and now. I'll give you a second to think about it while I, I recall the U.S.-Paraguay pre-World Cup friendly that I saw at a 10,000-seat stadium in Cary, North Carolina, a match that would never have happened had the U.S. actually qualified for the World Cup. Amit, who's your favorite or least favorite U.S. men's national team player from that era? Oh, tough to be put on the spot. Um, I mean, late era Michael Bradley is a tough one because uh, you, you can't really call him a cone. I have a lot of, you know, I like Michael Bradley. He gave us a lot of good memories. But uh, when the legs went, man, he was not good. He was not good, especially in Greg. Greg early on was like, we got to play the system. We got to possess the ball. Got to cover a lot of ground. And he could pass, but then he he was just a little caught out. So I have some some bad memories of him in this cycle and you know he was phased out pretty pretty quickly but tough C- cone is definitely a, a strong term but um 
I I just I enjoyed that. There were just for for a year there. There were several just like very ordinary MLS players who like I I remember Dan Lovitz playing like important minutes in the 2019 like a non not off year like an on year Gold Cup maybe even I forget if he played in the final but like definitely played in in the knockout rounds and in in key games like that 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 was kind of emblematic of where the where the roster was at at that point. So, as we said, the U.S. men's national team will name their final squad on Wednesday. We're recording this podcast on a Friday. It'll probably be out on, I don't know, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It'll be out at some point before the squad announcement, but then it'll be relevant for for a long ways past it. Henry, what's one big thing that you're looking for in the squad? Is there a big thing that you're looking for in the squad? And will you learn anything from what we see on Wednesday at the squad announcement? Yeah, I mean, I think I'll say two things. The first is like, just a single player, like whether Tim Ream is in this squad, like center back is clearly the position of need. Ream, I think it's fair to say like Berhalter is right that he does not fit what the U.S. is trying to do in a lot of ways, but he's also much better than, he's just flat out better than the players who do fit the system. Um, and while he hasn't been with the team over the past year, he did play significant roles under Berhalter earlier earlier in his tenure um and like he you know he played in the um in the Nations League final where they where they beat Mexico I believe you know he was a part of that group so like it'll be very interesting to see whether he is in it and also like you know I think the the four center backs right now are if everybody was healthy the Berhalter's four center backs would be Zimmerman Aaron Long Chris Richards and uh, Cameron Carter Vickers, I think. Um, but one one and a half of those guys have been dealing with with you know re- you know varying degrees of injuries. Um, and especially Richards, you know, he hasn't played much soccer at all since April. Um, so that could potentially be a spot for Reem either instead of one of those guys, or do you just like bring him as the fifth guy? He can play as a left back if you absolutely need him as well. Um, he could play in a back three. So that'll be interesting to me. And then just, you know, striker, A, whether you bring three or four, and B, whether he brings Jordan Pifak. Like, I think, I mean, Ferrer, Jesus Ferreira is obviously going. I think Josh Sargent is 100% going if he's fit, um, which I think he will be. It seems like this stuff is just precautionary recently. And then it's between Pepe and Pifak. And a month ago, I would have said it was absolutely crazy to take Pepe over over Pifak. Now Pepe is scoring, albeit in a pretty, you know, vanilla league. Um and Pifak is not scoring anymore. Uh so I I think that's a total toss up and I would probably say that he'll he'll probably bring Pepe and won't bring Pifak. Yeah. Hey, Mitt, uh, go ahead. Oh, you know who is scoring? Just... Oh man. Here he goes. You know who is scoring? Brandon Vasquez is scoring. It is absolutely befuddling to me that you have three strikers who are all in varying stages of not scoring, and you have a player who is an MLS player, granted, but is scoring and is in good form and is a promising player and should probably be in the squad, and the dude just can't get a sniff. Like, can someone explain the whole Brandon Vasquez thing to me? Yeah, I mean, I think the explanation is pretty simple and like there's some logic to it he's only done it for one year and ricardo pepe did it for a year when he was playing in mls and then went elsewhere and 
obviously hasn't done it as much since, but which do you think Ricardo Pepe couldn't do what Brandon Vasquez is doing if he was back in MLS right now? I don't know, but he's not. And Brandon Vasquez is. And a lot of the World Cup is about form. And I think that the U.S. has kind of lost sight of that. And, and Burhalter is this very, like, build the system, play the – like, at some point, you just have to put a dude who's hot in the squad. You have 26 spots. Like, put the guy who's hot and is scoring, right? I I agree with that. But I also think, like – like he hasn't been he wasn't that hot over the he had a hot he had hot stretches throughout the season and had a great season overall. I don't know if it, if he was that hot to close the season. Um and you know who wasn't hot to close the season? Jesus Ferreira. Those goals dried up come uh, August and September and October. And I mean your your broader point is a very fair one and is kind of the whole theme with the Burhalter criticism and this team like, you know, the system versus just like pick the best players. Um, and he obviously prioritizes the system and familiarity with it and fits within it. And I think to some extent he does that to a fault. Like, I think it was a reasonable experiment to try to really build a system with this team. Um, but he and, you know, the, the Federation leadership, I think just overestimated how just how much national team player pools can fluctuate um and how it, it especially with this group of players where there are a lot of young players coming through and kind of joining the group late in the cycle um and so like i like if vasquez had if he had done this last season like he for sure would have gotten a chance i think he probably should have gotten a chance in i mean the timing of things was kind of difficult because in June, when they were, or in May, when they were selecting that roster, he had really only had a couple months of national team worthy soccer under his belt. And then in September, you only have 180 minutes of soccer. And like, frankly, they didn't even really have that much training during that camp. Um, so I, I, I get why he is, he's not there. Lame. I think we all get it, but uh, the U.S. needs goal scorers. And so it, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I'm a, I'm a, I think Josh Sargent can be that. Like if, if I were coaching this team, Josh Sargent would be starting for sure the Wales game. Um, and maybe like him as the guy, unless something, uh, unless something goes awry. What, what's your case for Sargent being the, the guy versus Ferreira? Because I think you need like when they ha- when the U.S. is like really bad, it's because they haven't really had like an outlet to stretch the field. Um, it, both both somebody who can run in behind, but also somebody who can be a target. And Ferrer just like is not a target. He can obviously run in behind, um, but that's not really what the U.S. asks him to do. They often ask the wingers to run in behind um, and Ferrer to drop deep. And I just like. Like, I like Ferreira, and his pressing is very good. Um, and he has a decent, like, he's pretty good at getting into good positions in and around the penalty area and ha- has done that with the national team. He just hasn't finished. I don't think that's the, like, the issue for Ferreira with me in terms of making the jump from very good MLS player to international caliber player is less that he will never be able to score goals at the international level. I think he can. It's more so that, the dropping in and combining stuff that he does well in MLS. Like, I'm not sure he can do as much of that in a more physical, faster game at the international level. And I think Sargent 
like Sargent is just a more well-rounded player. I think like he can do a decent amount of the pressing that Ferreira can do. He can do a decent amount of the picking the ball up wide and running it. He obviously, you know, he's got plenty of experience playing on the wing. Um, and then in addition, he can be an aerial threat um, and, and can be somebody you can play the ball and do his chest or head and he can, you know, do something with it. Um, so that's kind of my, it just gives you more in-game flexibility, I think, to, to play, to play Sargent. Hard to disagree with that. I think those are very good points. I think the, the thing with Ferreira that he gets into good positions still with the national team is something you'd expect eventually the goals to come, but in a world cup, you know, the, you know, there's not a lot of room for error. You don't get, you don't get to be a volume striker and be bad at it. You got to bang them in early and you need to take advantage. So, you know, maybe if one of them's hot early, you ride with them. I think that's probably what, what Greg will do. Um, and then I think specifically, like you said, versus Wales and Iran specifically teams in that lower block, you might want a sergeant out there. I, I, I still kind of believe in Ferrer. I think we both agree. I like him. Um, you know, I do think he's more in the system because he can, he'll come back and combine than what Greg would like, but it's tough. And I, I know you, we just, you said maybe five minutes ago that they're going to probably bring Pepe instead of Pifok, but I would think really hard about getting him in because you need someone to super sub for 10 minutes when you're chasing a game and you just need a dude in the box. That's a threat on set pieces, a threat to, you know, stab a loose ball in. Um, and he's physical, right? He can post up on center back, so you can play into his feet. Like, I know he's he's a really bad dribbler. He's not a great passer. But, like, if you're down one in a game against anyone, like, you need a guy like that. And that's one thing where, like, both Ferreira and Sargent, I like them both. And I, I do think they can score goals. But, like, I don't think that they're going to be the players to come, like, win you a match and that's by design i think the u.s's best players are on the wing and in the midfield so that's fine but pfok is definitely a guy like you launch a corner in the box in the 86 minute he might be winning you he might be scoring you the game time goal so that's why i would definitely try to get him in with 26 but well yeah that's that's one of the things that's interesting is with the 26 man squads i think you have a little bit more wiggle room for a luxury player where you're designing you know the one instance in which you're going to use this player and I think that's something that we'll see in a lot of these squads I think you know you'll see it in Brazil and and with Argentina in that you have this player that you put in the squad for one specific situation and you say this is the guy that we're bringing on you know if we're defending a lead with 15 minutes to go or we're chasing a goal with 15 minutes to go I'm never going to use him otherwise but you have maybe that extra bit of wiggle room for something like that. Yeah, I totally agree. Like, I think they would, I think they, they can and should, like, I've been an advocate for bringing four strikers. Like, I, it, it doesn't, just in terms of squad balance, it doesn't really make sense. But in terms of scenarios in which you could see player X being useful and actually getting in a game, I think that scenario is much more likely for all four of the strikers than it is for a fifth center back or Joe Scally or, you know, or a sixth, a sixth central midfielder or something like that. Um, one of two questions for you guys on the, on the strikers, a, just in general, who, who, who do you, who should be favored to lead the U S in goals at this world cup? Like in terms of a betting market, who would be the favorite to be the leading goal scorer for the U S at this world cup? And if you, and the second question, if you were to set the over under for, goals for each individual player would any player 
have an over under above 0.5? Well, <laughs> I would I would honestly I think Ferreira would be my leading position uh, player because he gets you know I'm a big analytics guy not like they're the be all and end all but you know he gets he gets uh, positions in the box you know even in the September friendlies you know he got really good chances it's one of the things he does well that you mentioned he gets in the box and gets in finished positions and I think if you're just a you know I don't know how much the betting markets look into this stuff but I'm sure they consider it if the U.S. is creating chances he's going to be on the end of most of them by design and that's not that Sargent wouldn't be but I think that I just I, I I like Ferreira's ability to to score goals the way the U.S. plays if they're playing that way and I could see a line at one and a half if you were telling me he was starting every game and you were going to get four games, but that's high. I think it's really hard for any striker to have a line over a half. I do think, I think honestly, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about any player though. Yeah. I mean, I would not put a striker in. I would consider like McKenney if he's healthy because of the set piece threat. I would consider Pulisic because of the penalties. Because that's, take just penalties. Like, right. that's just like a cheat code for goals. And then, like, I would <laughs> consider, like, your center back because they're a set-piece threat. Like, it's not pretty. Right. But I think, like, I think, I mean, I think, so I think Pulisic would probably have the highest over under. Like, maybe his well, over-under is at one. I think Vegas also would get totally juiced by American fanboys <laughs> being like, this dude plays for Chelsea. He was in a Champions League final. He's our best player over, and that'd be disappointing for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, your your analysis is totally right. I mean, I mean, the other name name to mention that you didn't mention is Tim Weah. Obviously, uh, yeah. like, he he's he's got real quality in the in the box around the box. He's really good at you know dribbling, shooting. Like I like it. I like that one too. Yeah, but like the reason I was thinking about it is because I think on the list of like most likely to lead the U.S. in goal scoring at this World Cup, I think Weah and Pulisic are both probably both ahead of any of the strikers. Just because we don't know which of the strikers are really going to get missed. Yeah, they're going to play, right? Like, you're much more confident that those two guys are going to see a majority big chunk of the minutes than you are about any of the strikers, regardless of, of who kind of makes the squad. All right, so we've kind of gone around the squad. We've talked about maybe what to, to look at with the squad announcement, the striker discussion, the center back discussion. I think those are probably the two biggest points that we're looking at. Um, I personally don't know if the U.S. has the luxury to just not pick a guy who's consistently playing and captaining a Premier League team. Uh, I think that's a, a really interesting point. And he, to, and he to plays with your best left back. He plays right. with your best left back, which matters. Right. Um, so we, kind of losing one ankle. That's fine. It's fine. You only need one. You only need one. So kind of looking forward to what we expect when the U.S. plays against Wales, England, and Iran – I think we probably expect the Wales and Iran game will look similar in approach. Obviously, that could vary based on what the U.S. needs. England might be a different package. I mean, what should we expect from this U.S. team? How are they going to play? Are they going to play anti-soccer? Are they going to try to hold the ball? Is it going to vary by opposition? Like, if you're coming into this match and you've not watched a lot of the U.S. for the last four years, what are they going to actually do when they get to the World Cup? I think what they should do and what they actually do are two different things. I think they're close. And I think it's really hard because Greg spent years trying to build this possession-based system, which he kind of modeled off his time in Columbus, which is disorganized opponents with the ball, positional play. We're going to build out of the back and we're going to like 
overload you in certain areas and we're going to feed the ball to the middle of the box and score. And that's really hard for them to do because their center backs can't pass. One of them can't pass. Like Zimmerman is a fine distributor, but if it's Aaron Long, I mean, CCV is okay on the ball, but Aaron Long, I think is a really interesting pivot point on this because the other way they can play is the way they did against Mexico and a few games in their World Cup qualifying, which is where they really press you really aggressively. They turn the game into a bunch of duels, a bunch of 50-50s. They win the ball, and they just recycle and yam it into the box as much as possible and hope to score. And then they play a high line because, you know, they know they're athletic. If you look at all their back four, their two center backs can win duels, and their two outside backs are fast. And then Tyler Adams, I mean, I think there's a very strong case that he's one of the best pressing sixes in the world. Like, he just is. He did it for Leipzig, which is a club that builds their whole thing on the press. He went to Leeds, where they brought in Jesse Marsh, and all they do is press. You have Brendan Aronson, who, if you're starting Pulisic and Weah, is not in your starting eleven. literally is shattering records for distance run in the Premier League, one of the best pressing wingers in the world. And then, you know, McKenney. McKenney's actually not good at, like, moving the ball or, like, doing creative things, but he's really good at being athletic and just kind of, like, running around and making things happen. I think if you look at the U.S., they just don't have enough quality to play with the ball. So what they should do is just super press people and, like, make games a scrap, put teams in the mixer, out-athleticize them, make it ugly, get back to the U.S. identity of scrapping. And the issue is you see the two teams in their group are just going to sit back and invite them to do that and just, like, hoof away long balls for 90 minutes. I think it's really ugly. And I don't know what the scenario is. And, like... You know, if you watch a team that presses a lot, there are plenty of them. You can pick your favorite choice. You know, I'm a Union fan. You watch the Union. They play teams that pack it in every week. And what they do is they win the ball and they send it in the box. And then they win it and they send it in the box. You could do that for 90 minutes and it's going to be ugly. But, like, I I would rather do that than, like, try to play and get caught out. Mark McKenzie got caught out a bunch of bad times in qualifying. Aaron Long, one of the good things about him is because he's so bad at passing, they don't try to, like, play through the back. They just send it up. So, like, I think keeping it simple is better. And I know Wales and Iran are tough teams to do it against. But, like, let's scrap and see what happens. And if it's 60 minutes and you don't have a goal, let's bring on some creative guys. Like, I think you need – if pull, the way Polis – I was – a few weeks ago, I was really close to like dying on this hill of like bench Christian Pulisic and start Harrison and Wea. And like that was my super radical take uh, as a Philly fan. You know, I'm a big Brendan Aronson guy, but I think we're at the point where like you, I don't think you can do that. But I I really want to see Brendan Aronson in the side. And my, my rationale was behind it. it was like let's press the team for 60 minutes and then let's bring on Pulisic and Reyna, two really good dribblers, two really good creators. And the and so like I you know it's sixty minutes and the pressing isn't working then let's bring on some guys to break down dudes one on one and let's try that but I don't know I don't know if you want to do that for for sixty minutes because you do give up chances they gave up chances against Mexico you play a high line it's going to happen I'd be terrified of Gareth Bale um, I know Iran eh, I, I need to... should we should we be okay, terrified of Gareth Bale. No, but Wales Gareth Bale is gonna try. Like I, I, don't, I guess. Know. maybe maybe I shouldn't be terrified of him, but he's just got quality. And then Iran, I need to solidify these names here, but they have two guys that are really really good on the counter. Um, 
They have Jahan Bakash. They have Mady Taremi, who's been scoring really well. Um, they're just the, you know, you're going to risk it if you play that style. So this is a really long answer, but my point is I think they should scrap. I think they should press. They should make it ugly. And if it doesn't work, then you can try plan B. But plan A should not be to play with the ball. You're going to get burned. Yeah, but so the I think the issue, like you hit on the issue there, is that they have they have had success when they, like when pressing is their like primary quality and the thing that they hang their hat on. I don't think they've had success doing that when the other team is like trying to make them do something else and just letting them have the ball. And like that is, we're pretty sure that's what Wales is going to do. Um, but and, that's the, the beauty of it is like you're not trying to keep the ball in dangerous areas. I think it's all about like controlling the field. And so, like, win, just control, win the midfield. And it might be ugly, like, 0-0 zero, zero type stuff, but, like, this, like, you just got to be a beast on set pieces. Like, get a lot of corner kicks. Like, keep your, keep your wingbacks, keep your fullbacks back. Don't commit them to the attack. And, like, I think a big part of this is Yunus Musa. If he's fit, healthy, I don't think that's a concern right now, but playing – because when you have him in the squad, you can keep some of your players back, and he's a one-man ball progression. Because Adams and McKenney, like can't really do that that well. But that way, you just press the ball, win it, give it to him, get in the final third, give it to one of the wingers, and then yam it in the box. And I like it's so like 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 I'm thinking of like a video game. Like it's a it's meta FIFA. Tw- it's FIFA. It's how you play FIFA. You just put the ball on the well, side. You just yam X or square. Yeah, right. Like it's not going to be pretty, but I I would I would, what, what you said the issue, I think it works both ways. Like I would be very concerned if they tried to keep the ball and play with it against those teams and they make a mistake in possession in a dangerous area. Like one of the things about playing this way is that your instructions when you get the ball is very simple. Like get it forward. Don't don't dawdle on it because that's when you get picked off. And like, it's very hard to stay disciplined and do that for 90 minutes. But like, I I get scared of the U S defensively in transition. Like Zimmerman's not that fast. And so I know when you're playing a transition game, when you're pressing, it's part of it, but they just, they're so good at their midfield three should be so good at winning the ball. Yeah. So I think like the, the ideal, the ideal way that this goes for the U S is and I know the, the opponents are totally different, but like I think the ideal scenario is the Wales game looks something like that Morocco game in June, um, which is just kind of like a like I'm I would guess that possession was roughly fifty fifty in that game. Um, Morocco wasn't like pressing the U.S. in their like it wasn't a super high press, but they were pressing some, um, and the U.S. just like showed like their midfield quality just like made them the dominant team to some extent and and it wasn't a totally dominant dominant performance um but they deserve to win by probably a goal or two um yeah and then the england game is like i think the england game is where like i can see aronson aronson starting right like that's where i think you switch up the lineup especially given that there's only three days in between games and then if you can get and then i mean i i don't even i'm not even sure how much they should be thinking about the I mean obviously they are thinking about the Iran game and they have a game plan for it but it feels like there's a pretty high I, yeah just it, over the over the first two match days whatever you're planning for just goes out the window somehow um so that's a very good point you have to adjust I think two things that make it hard is what we know about 
well, we know about all three teams, but specifically England is they actually play very, very conservatively for the talent they have, which is really annoying. And Iran, who has brought back Carlos Caros. He's back. He's just like, we have a track record of him being one of the most conservative international managers ever. Like, go watch the highlights of Iran-Argentina. Those Argentina was like out of answers in the 92nd minute if it wasn't for a messy wonder goal. And like everyone's saying, we've seen this before, we've seen this before. Okay, Iran's actually very good. They have good players that can hurt you on the counter. They're not going to like bunker for 90 minutes. It's not that simple, but like they're going to defend in a block and it's going to be miserable to break them down. So like, I think it's a really, it's really tricky for, for Greg to decide which way he wants to play. And I think it's important to be flexible. So I think what you mentioned about switching the lineup for England is going to happen. It's definitely going to happen with the rotation. That's the other thing I worry about Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna to an extent. How many minutes can you get out of those guys? Like they could easily get hurt. It, they've just had, they have their, their whole careers. It's kind of unfortunate. They could easily get hurt. And so many of these guys are not playing 90 minutes consistently for the clubs right now. So like how able are they to a just play 90 minutes in that first game at a, you know, at a good level and then B play 90 minutes yeah. four days later also. And there's going to be yellow cards. And there's also, there are certain spots where the U S is more cooked than others. If they get an injury and left back is one of them. Like we haven't, we haven't talked about it, but like what happens if Robinson gets hurt or can't play? Like, is it really Serginio Dest? Are they bringing Sam Vines or Joe Scally? It seems unlikely. And do you think Serginio Dest should be starting any of these matches? Oh yeah, for sure. All of them? Or he's the, he's the first choice right back over Yedlin. He should be. Probably. Yeah, oh, totally. I think. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I think, I, the question I think is that's like... fair. I think you need him to break down teams, but that's another like peg against playing the super pressing aggressive way because Dest is just like kind of a weak sauce defender and he's, he's gotten better at it. He's obviously going to compete. I'm not saying he's a bad defender and he's very fast, which helps, but like, what Dest is really good at is basically being like a winger at right back. And we all we all know that. That's helpful against Iran and Wales. So I definitely think starting him there is good. I think if you put Serginho Dest out against like Phil Foden, like he's just barbecue chicken. That is bad. That is Jude Bellingham, Phil Foden are just going to overload on that side, Jack Grealish, and just run at him the entire game. And it's going to be miserable. So I would not play him. Well, I mean, we've seen him be, like, barbecue chicken against, like, CONCACAF wingers, right? No, like, I know. Like, but, like, <laughs> sorry, this is unrelated. But when you brought up Tim Reeb in that Gold Cup game, all I could think about was playing him as the left center back in a the five-minute back line and Diego Lainez subbing on and just, like, roasting him for 30 <laughs> minutes. But, like, that was very specific. And I like Tim Reeb and would like to see him as well. Listen, good wingers – the U.S. outside backs are good, but not like incredible. So that's going to be a tr- that's going to be a problem against anyone. Um, Henry, what is success for the U.S. at this World Cup? What defines success? Is it the round of sixteen? Is it the quarterfinals? Is it a competitive performance? Because essentially, for me, the second the U.S. missed out on the World Cup in Trinidad, I think I looked over to admit and I said, "You know what's going to happen." They're going to qualify perfectly fine. They're going to get to Qatar. They're going to win a game. They're going to draw a game. They're going to lose a game. They're going to get to the round of 16. They're going to play somebody good. They're going to lose, but there's going to be a moment or two, and it's like, oh, man, that would have gone differently. Think how this would have been. Like, would that 
which I think we can all agree is at some point was the most likely scenario. Maybe now it's not. Is that a successful World Cup for the U.S.? Yeah, I think it. I think it is still the most likely scenario, and I think that's that's like right on the line between success and and, and unsuccessful. And I think in part it depends on how they look doing it, and like because I mean, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but like a lot of these players are probably going to be on the 2026 squad right. on home soil in their, you know, either in their primes or much closer to their primes. And so like, if this team gets to the knockout round and just like plays good soccer, um, I think that's, you could reasonably consider that success. It won't be, I'm sure us media won't talk about it as a resounding success, but I think it's, I think it's acceptable. And I think one thing you brought this up, you know, looking towards 2026, it's fascinating to me and it's understandable. There's going to be one player in this U.S. team that has been to a World Cup before. And that's going to be DeAndre Yedlin. And he was 20 in the 2014 World Cup. Uh, Julian Green, where are you? This was your time. This was supposed to be your World Cup, man. Uh, I think there's that's a non-insignificant fact for this U.S. team, right? Yeah, for sure. It's that, yeah, For sure. It's not insignificant. I, I think... I'm sure some people will make a bigger deal out of it than it than it actually is. I mean, you know, none of these Wales players have played in a World Cup before, obviously. Um, and, and you know, the U.S. players would tell you, yeah, we haven't played in a World Cup, but we played in some pretty darn big Champions League games that previous U.S. generations did not play in. Um, so, and I think there's something to that. And I also think there's the counter argument that, like, this U.S. team is at its best when it just, like, goes out and doesn't really give a shit about the stage or the or scenarios or anything and just plays really just aggressive free soccer and i would i, I would totally bet on weston mckinney and tyler adams doing that um so i it's definitely not insignificant to your point but like i don't think it's i don't think it's going to be the reason that they don't get out of their group for example I think those are good points, Henry. I agree with you. I think the goal has to be to get out of the group stage. And externally, and in the soccer world, like U.S. media, soccer media, two separate things. U.S. media is always going to have a little unrealistic expectations. And then there, I think soccer media would say, like, you know, the U.S., some people might be saying they're they're not even good enough to get out of their group because they the way they performed was bad. But I think when we all saw the groups come out, everyone looked at this group and said, there's no reason why the U S can't finish second in this group. And, you know, I, I think they should, I think if you look at the FIFA rankings, which don't mean a whole lot, like England is in the top six or something. And the U S uh, Iran and Wales are all right around top 20, but the U S is slightly better than them. And I think if you go on talent, the U S is the second most talented team in the group. The U S has talent to make a round of 16. The U.S. has talent to make a quarterfinal, but there might be a lot of factors in the way of that. And I think it's inexperience, youth. I think it's maybe their manager. I think maybe it's their injuries, some limitations. But that's like you can't expect a team that's never done that to do that. I think that's really unfair. I think winning a round of 16 game like would mark the most progress. I mean, the last time that happened was 2002. Like yeah. the U.S. just doesn't do that. 
They don't win round of 16 games. It's unheard of for United States soccer, men's soccer. But, like, they can do that. I think they're good enough. There is a very, very real scenario where the U.S. scrapes through this group on top. If they do that, it would be a failure to lose against the second-place team in Group A if it's not Netherlands. And we can talk about a Or there's an upset in Group A, right? Yeah, and they get Netherlands. And I think it's very dependent, right? We all know the U.S. is going to play a team from Group A if they get through. And if it's Netherlands and they lose to them, it's very much the narrative that we've all talked about. Good. It's so similar to Belgium from 2014. Very similar to, well, not as similar to Ghana in 2010. Ghana might actually have been a little bit better than the U.S. in 2010, but I think most people would tell you that the talent gap was closer than the two European teams that we're talking about here. So it's, you got to get out of the group, but if you don't, I don't think it's like a big failure. You can look and say like, there's all these reasons that it didn't happen. I think the range of outcomes because of the uncertainty of such a young team is okay. But the media is obviously going to be ravenous if they don't get out of their group. And if they play a team that's not the Netherlands and lose, it'll be really bad. And I th- it, the success question is so interesting because, like I, to some extent, you could say that there, there really shouldn't, given the age of this team and given where they are in their life cycle, there shouldn't be that many expectations on them. On the other hand, like they're not going to have World Cup qualification before 2026 um it's real and obviously they'll have some tournaments maybe there's some sort of copa america that comes together they'll have gold cups nations league things like that um but this like this tournament really is going to be like what the vibes going into 2026 are to some extent probably more so than ever because there won't be a world cup qualification cycle to to lead into it um so it's almost like to some extent, like I think the vibes coming out of it matter more than whatever the actual, you know, stage of their progression in the knockout rounds is. Well, and like it's the World Cup, like it's it's you know, and, and it's it's easy to say like on paper, you know, twenty twenty six is is the North Star. That's where all efforts are pointed and everything. But like it only happens once every four years, you know. It's so like it's still the World Cup, and you still want to be good at it. And yeah, the U.S. team is is young and inexperienced and they're looking to, to get experience and all of that at this world cup. But at the end of the day, it's the world cup and it happens once every four years. And it is the opportunity to make soccer a conversation point in the United States, which just doesn't happen. And so, you know, you don't have very many opportunities to do that. I think what Henry said about, and what Austin said about the, you know, the world cup comes only once every four years, of course they all matter. And this team is good enough to make a quarterfinal. And I think it's hard because of, you know, the U.S. media and the external media. If you said that's the goal, you know, they they would probably say maybe they can't do that. But internally, I bet you that they're thinking they can beat England, win the group, get to the round of 16, beat the second place team from Group A. So, you know, I, I think after the fact, it'll be easier to say what the expectation should have been. But going in, I think everyone has to, like, keep the mindset that, yes, this team could make a quarterfinal. But also, don't be surprised if they don't get out of the group. The range of outcomes is just that wide. Wow. I love the looking back. The ex- It should have been clear what the expectations should have been. That's some galaxy brain stuff there. I love it. That's an impressive way to look at expectations. Well, I mean, he, after the fact, we'll be able to say what the I mean, expectations yeah, should have just been. Just after one game, we'll have an idea of what this team will sure. do. And one last point on it, which Henry alluded to, 
the U.S. is definitely made up of big game players. Weston is like noted for this. Right. Tyler Adams is noted for this. Pulisic definitely a little bit. I think it's, you know, they definitely did not play well in some of the lead up to this, but specifically in the two September ones, empty crowds, European camp, it was a little tough. We've known that they show up for the biggest games, the Gold Cup um, against Mexico and Nations League, Nations League, qualifying at home. Like, these guys love love this stuff. So I do think that, like, that will help the U.S. play to their full potential when they're when they're in Qatar. Yeah, and, like, when they've struggled with big moments, it's been in those Central American atmospheres. Like, that is not going to be what they're facing at this World right. Cup. It's going to be – I'm sure it'll be a pretty split crowd, and it'll just be – it'll be, a, a like, a, just a fun, big stage, but it won't be hostile at all. Like, I, I think it's perfect for – like, as you said, it was totally unsurprising that Weston McKinney looked like a Sunday league player against against Japan in an empty stadium, you know, in a, in a friendly after he's coming from a coming from a situation where he does have to perform week in and week out for Juventus in front of big crowds in Italy. Like it's that's that's just who he and a few of these other players are. And I would be totally conf- assuming he's healthy. I would be totally confident in him at the World Cup. That's a really interesting point. I hadn't I hadn't necessarily thought of that, and I think that's a, an interesting way to look at it. Henry, who's the most important player for this U.S. team? I think it's Yunus Musa, and I'm not sure it's all that close. Like he's just totally nobody has anything close to his skill set in the player pool. Um, as a, like I, as Amit said earlier, he is a one man press breaker, ball progressor, whatever you want to call it. Um, both of those things, frankly, um, he's not not weak defensively like he he's a he's a pretty darn good all-around player i absolutely think you could see him getting sold by valencia for 40 million dollars next summer if he plays well at this world cup um another reports that you know some top premier league clubs are already tracking him like liverpool for example um and he and again like you know he wasn't there in september and they looked absolutely dreadful um, and I don't think that's a coincidence at all. Obviously, some other players are missing too, but I just I there there is no when he is if he is out if he is not playing well if you know first if 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 he tries maybe you know the other downside um, like the other the other bad scenario is if if he's there but he tries to do a lot of his taking players on in midfield and skating past them and just like it doesn't work against England or something like that. But I don't think that's particularly likely. Like he's really freaking good, and I just think, yeah, he's there. There is nobody else in the U.S. team, either on the field with him or that could replace him in the lineup that can do what he does. And so I think he's totally like he is far more important than Pulisic, even though Pulisic will get all the all the attention by the by mainstream media, obviously. A bit agreed. I agree. I think you can give a shout here to Anthony Robinson. He's not as important as Musa, but it's similar in that if you don't have him in, the options are bad and he allows them to play their certain way because what they'll do if they don't have him, they'll play Dest on the left wing, left back, left back. And then what he does is he kind of like cuts inside and he kind of acts as like a pivot CDM fullback and he dribbles a lot but he always comes inside and it doesn't work as well with Pulisic where they have a really good chemistry between him and Robinson. And Robinson is just a physical fast defender. Des is fast, but we already talked about him earlier. 
And then those two are big ones. And then I think Adams is important just because he's the engine of the press. But if they don't have him, Kellen Acosta is a good defensive midfielder. I think if you view Acosta as the replacement to Musa, it's a lot worse. And Acosta obviously isn't as good of a presser as Adams, but Adams is so key to what they do. But I think Musa is the clear answer here. And those two are just some other options. And I think the other player who probably deserves a shout is Tim Weah, just because he is like the one kind of vertical winger they have. I don't think he needs to be the most important because I think, you know, if he were to get injured, for example, like I think what they, what Berhalter should do is play Pulisic on the right in like the high backline stretching winger role and play Reyna as the, in the kind of role that Pulisic plays right now. But in the friendlies, he, he he's, Berhalter has never really shown a willingness to do that. And if you're just swapping another winger in for Weah and trying to ask that winger to play Weah's role, I think that's a pretty big drop-off. Are, are you saying uh, that Paul Areola can't do that? Neither Paul nor Jordan. <laughs> Frankly, Jordan Morris is probably the closest skill yeah. set, right? But, yeah. uh, but, but obviously, a, a, a bit of a gap in quality there. X factors. Is there is there a player that's kind of floating around this team that you think can have an impact in that kind of like yeah not first tier super important yeah, player? Yeah, I've got role? a good one here. I realize we've went you know forty plus minutes and we have not talked about goalkeeper. Um, I think it's gonna be my point. Same thing on our mind, and we know how important goalkeepers are um, in any level. In knockout soccer, you can get hot for a match, for multiple matches, and you can totally ruin uh, a good team's day. We all know Tim Howard versus Belgium, 14 saves. We lost. But Mexico Memo, yeah, anybody? I mean, the, yeah, and he's he's literally a different player. And, you know, we I'm surprised I didn't bring this up earlier when we were talking about playing styles with a little bit of the Turner-Stefan thing, playing out of the feet versus kicking it long. But one thing the U.S. have in Matt Turner, who should be their number one and probably will be, is he is an elite shot stopper. He just is. He's very good at it. I'm not saying he's perfect and he can make mistakes. But if the U.S. are up against it in a big match or even against England in the group stage, he's a guy that can save you three points. He's a guy that can make penalty shootout saves. He's really good. And that's, you know, we know goalkeepers can totally change an entire match in these types of tournaments. So it's a, it's definitely X factor for sure, and that's a hundred percent the reason that Matt Turner should start over Stefan, right? Like Matt Turner can, I think like maybe maybe Zach Stefan elevates your level slightly throughout the ninety minutes. Uh, what you can do, I think Matt Turner is far more likely to be the reason you win a game, and Stefan is far more likely to be the reason you lose a game between those two guys. It'd be one thing if they were close to comparable in shot stopping quality and then Stefan had this great edge in playing the ball out with his feet and distributing. Um, it's not that Stefan's a bad shot stopper. He's bad at decision making and commanding his box, which is not what you want. He just makes like boneheaded errors too often. He's been I you know I can't say I've been watching him in the championship. Um, I know Matt uh, Matt Turner has had really good numbers with Arsenal in the Europa League. You know, most of those games, it's been relatively comfortable, but I, 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 it's the, it's the errors thing. You can't have a goalkeeper that's you can't trust back there, and it's a psyche thing too. If you think your guy's going to make a mistake, it's really bad. So, I, I hope I think at this point it's clear. I know a year ago the rumblings were like 
Berhalter really he wanted re- really Stefan to be the goalkeeper. Like throughout the entire qualification cycle, it certainly felt like from an outsider's perspective, which is what I kind of think I bring, Berhalter really wanted Zach Stefan to be his goalkeeper. But as we now get actually close to the World Cup, Henry, are you pretty convinced it's going to be Turner? I mean, if he hadn't missed the last three games to injury, he made Uh oh. Um, uh oh. And because, you know, two months ago, like, Turner was totally healthy. He was about to start playing in the Europa League for Arsenal. Everything, all signs pointed to Turner. And Stefan was, Stefan had been injured. Now Stefan's healthy. Turner's injured. I mean, I, fr- I frankly I have no clue. Can I interest you I have in, no clue. in Town's Ethan Horvath? Look, he's, I, I don't he's think fine. it's out of the question. I don't think it's out of the question that Ethan Horvath or even I mean I think it's I think Sean Johnson. Sean Johnson, give me some Sean Johnson love. Horvath, I, I don't know who's gonna be on the roster. I think there's a better chance that Horvath, you know, in terms of better in terms of like two percent versus one percent, but that Horvath actually gets into it, like starts a game or gets into a game. Both um, both players are good though. The US goalkeeper pool is solid. Yeah. Like if Horvath or it's John, deep, it's not top heavy anymore. Yeah, but if yeah. Either of those guys are starting a game, I wouldn't be pointing as them as a reason we could lose. Yep. And also, like, Gagos Lanina, there's a chance that. <laughs> no, no, I will not be a part of this conversation. Henry, you're not a member, you're not a member of the Austin Amit Chicago Fire Hate Club. Oh, wow. Which is where we just watch the entire Chicago Fire season and make fun of them. But I will not have any Gaga Slonina talk. That dude sucks. Wow. He's he not suck. good. He is He's not fine. good. I would just – I personally would like his agent for my life in whatever. Yes. Yes. I want his agent. Yes. He, he, is he, Look, does he have a chance? No. He doesn't have a chance. He has a chance to make the roster. Yeah, okay. Not, not to play. I mean, I he think. could be the third, fourth – Third keeper, sure. I mean, he's in the, he's in this he's in this quote unquote fitness yeah. camp in in Dallas right now. I see. Um, Great, Henry. Would you say that if Turner was a hundred percent healthy and if Stefan was at the level that they'd probably take Selena as the third goalkeeper for experience building, blah blah blah, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think it would. I have no idea where they're going with third goalkeeper, and frankly, I haven't done too much thinking about it. Sure, sure. <laughs> Low That's on fair. the list of priorities. That's fair. Oh man, that Gaga Slinina rant got me really excited for the Switzerland portion of of, of an upcoming show. because oh. I got one for Sheridan Shakiri oh, too. I got one for Shakiri too, my man. Um, all right, let's kind of wrap this up here. And, and I don't really know what the best way to kind of ask this question is. So I'll just put it frankly: What's going to happen with this team at the World Cup? Like, what does your gut say is going to be what actually happens? We've talked through all of the various possibilities. We've laid out all of the scenarios. We've put in the expectations. But when rubber beats the road and they actually take the pitch and they play Wales, England, Iran, and then maybe somebody else after it, what's going to actually happen, Henry? How are they going to actually do? How is this actually going to go? I mean, I think my gut says, like, it's going to be kind of that most likely scenario we talked about. Like, I think they will play well and beat Wales. I think they will play pretty average in both of the second in the second and third games. And I don't know if they – I think there's a chance they get a point against England. There's also a chance they lose. I think there's – I think all three outcomes are, you know, reasonably realistic against Iran. Um, like I think, I actually think Iran is a better team than Wales, um, and, and will be a better team. I think Wales is going to finish bottom of the group. So I think the U S will scrape through and probably, I mean, there's, look, there's a chance that they, 
they could win a knockout game without playing that. There's a 5% chance that they play Qatar in the round of 16, right? Or something yeah, like that. It could, um, it could happen in second place, which would be unlikely, but they could also finish first and get that team. Yeah. So anyway, like, I think they're, I, I don't, there's a the, the most likely my gut would be that they pr- they probably get the you know the most likely scenarios they get the Netherlands in that round of sixteen game and and probably lose and it's a, a and gold it, cup throwback with Qatar is that what we're going for I would I mean I would love that would that would be quite the uh, quite the round of sixteen date Amit I mean it's I think we all have the same conclusion for a reason right like if you if you had your your probability bell curve of what this the outcomes look like. It's just the most likely they're the second best team in the group. They finish second. It's most likely the best team in Group A is the Netherlands. And if they play the Netherlands, the most likely outcome is the Netherlands wins. Now, because soccer is chaotic, something else could happen. But if you're asking us to predict what will happen, that's what we'd say. I spent you know some time earlier. I do think the U.S. can make a quarterfinals. But if you were asking me to pick the U.S. one off against the Netherlands, I couldn't. I couldn't do that in like good conscience, other than just like I believe that we will win. Like no, I think. It's the most it's the most common outcome, and I do think that not making the group is plenty likely. And I think beating, uh, or winning a round of sixteen match is plenty likely. Like I do think it's kind of wider for e- a wider range of outcomes, and each outcome has a decent chance. It's not narrow. They're going to do this. They're going to do this. So I I think because part one of the reasons why I, I have a little optimism that they can make a run is I I think there's a scenario where England could finish second and the U.S. could finish first. Just yeah, because the vibes... That's something I wanted to bring up. England are bad. You could totally scrap a point with England and then try to outdo them in the other two games. Like, it, it could happen. And, you know, England's clearly a better team, but England's having a really bad run of it. They're due for some bad luck at a, world, uh, at a major tournament. They've had really good luck twice in a row with their, their deep runs. So, like... Anything, anything can happen, but yeah, most likely outcome sure is the one we're talking about. Also, England suddenly does not have fullbacks. Yeah, after supposedly having all the fullbacks in the world, <laughs> which is a problem. It's a really interesting group, I think, because it's so diverse in kind of what you have. You have this England team that you know is super talented. It's coming home. It hasn't come home yet, but it's coming home. We promise. Uh, you have an Iran team in which it's pretty clear what they're going to try to do, but they're really well equipped to do it. And also you have a huge political turmoil in their country, which makes things super fascinating. You have the whole geopolitical narrative with Iran and the United States, which is super fascinating. And then you have a Wales team that I think is is probably of the four is certainly the most likely to be in happy to be here mode. They made the World Cup. You know, Gareth Bale has been on a Los Angeles vacation for six months He's going to try to do something, but again, this is Wales. They're not terribly good. Uh, and I'm just going to reach into my bag of, you know, first game real importance and just pull one out. First game real important for the U.S., right? Like if they get three points from the Wales game, you feel pretty good about their chances to go through. Anything but that, and you don't like the looks for them, correct? Yeah, exactly. And I think like, into, like Amit mentioned the bell curve earlier. Like I think the... Classic emit bit to bring out the, the bell curve. The, Loves the bell curve. The the peak of that bell curve at this World Cup is very similar to what it was in terms of scenarios. It's very similar to what it was in 2014, 2010, etc. I think. I think it is flatter though than like I think the 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 there's a higher ceiling at this World Cup than some of those other ones, and there's a there's a lower floor. 
Agreed. Agreed. Wow. Agreed. It's, <laughs> I think it's a very good point. The reason why we all picked this is we've seen it. We, we saw it twice. Like the U S sure. is right around between the eighth and 16th best team in the world. Like that's, that's kind of what they are. And so that's what we, that's what we all could expect. Yeah. 2026 will be the time for crazy picks of semifinals and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I have to stick with what I said after the day when they missed the last world cup is they're going to make the world cup. They're going to win a game. They're going to lose a game. They're going to draw a game. They're going to get to the round of 16 and they're going to play fine. And they're going to lose like two, one. And there's going to be like those like two moments where it's just like, Oh man, I know we lost, but man, if that would have gone differently, just think what would have happened, you know? And I think that's, what's going to happen with this U S team. But I do think that there is a pretty wide array of possibilities particularly given what we've seen from the U.S. lately and what we've seen from the other teams in this group. Like, it wouldn't surprise me for the U.S. to finish on one point and be the bottom of this group if things go poorly. And it wouldn't surprise me if England falters and the U.S., you know, picks up five, six, or seven points and and tops the group and gets a a super cushy round of 16 matchup and makes the quarterfinals. Like, I don't think either of those things are are super unbelievable as as potential scenarios. Uh, Henry, before we let you go... Very quickly, who was your pick to win the World Cup? You know, I haven't 100% thought about or decided that. I've done all my group stage picks. I haven't. Now's the time. Now's the time. I guess. I mean, there's only, in my mind, there's only two options. Two. Um, I probably, I mean, not not only two teams that can win it, but two teams that I would realistically consider picking, and they're two South American rivals. Um, Yeah, here we go. He's on the squad, Amit. No, I mean, I think we agree with you, but people, what's up with no France in the top two? You just think they're they're a little too hurt. I think they're. I just don't. I'm not sure that that team makes. I'm not sure they're that good anymore. Oh, what if they, they have not been good recently? Oh, and but the yeah, the players that made them good in the past are not a decent amount of them are not going to be the other than Mbappe are not going to be there. Um, yeah, I, I mean, they're certainly, they're, they're contenders, but I mean, I'd probably, if you had to put me on the spot, I'd probably pick Argentina right now and not, wow, not he's joining the club again. dangerous. I think there's, I know, no, it's, a, I, we need to slow this down. We need early. to slow this down. There's too, too much early. Argentina. No, right, but everybody, there's going to be way, cause everybody's going to yeah, pick him, right? Like, I know. The, because Brazil is a just slightly too obvious pick. And so right. people think, oh, I'm going to pick Argentina. It's messy, you know, narrative, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Uh, we gotta slow it down. Yeah, it's happening maybe, too soon, maybe, man. Okay, maybe I'll go with no, Brazil no, no, instead. Got, I like it. I, I mean, it, you independently arrived at that conclusion in front of us. It's a good sign. It's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We didn't influence you. Maybe we did. Uh, Henry, super thanks for for coming on. It was it was a pleasure to have you. You certainly made us a lot smarter, and we hopefully didn't make you that much dumber. So, that's no, you made me smarter as well. I appreciate it. There we go. There we go. Rave reviews for World Cup After Dark. Amit. Oh. I do have one more question. Amit, what will Greg Berhalter wear for game one? Oh, probably like a tracksuit. And I guarantee you, like, he goes out of his way to throw the best behind-the-back pass you've ever seen against England while we lose, like, 2-1. And the internet will love it. That's a joke. But, no, definitely tracksuit. I'm going for a States shirt. He really likes those T-shirts that just has, like, States with the Nike swoosh. I'm, I'm going states. I don't think it's, it still is. It's going to be fairly warm there, even though it's 10 yeah, p.m. So at night in November. I don't think he's going. That's, that's a bad. That was a bad. Uh, forgetting the weather. 
states with the most expensive sneakers you've seen in your life. Right. He's going all out for I was like, I'm sure he is going to Qatar with a lot of different options for what he could wear. There we go. There we go. Great thanks to Henry for joining us. Amit and I will be back before you know it. Uh, next week, we've got a uh, CONCACAF Conoval preview show that we're going to fuse together and, and talk about. We'll preview everybody else at some point as well. And uh, the World Cup right around the corner, folks. So once again, a big thanks to Henry, and we'll be back before you know it.